Good morning. I just want to say what an honor it is for me to be here this morning. Uh, I'm so blessed to just even know this church. Um, like I, like uh, Pastor Mike said, I'm from North Shore Baptist Church, and uh, I remember the first Sunday that RGF held their first service when everyone from North Shore was missing. Uh, it was a noticeable dent in the service. There was no more Luke Amorelli playing the drums. There was no more Dan Herman doing the sound. Uh, no more Caleb Bunch giving the announcements, no more Rocky Wolford uh, loudly answering rhetorical questions to worship songs. <laughs> Glad that made sense to you guys. <laughs> All right. Um, you know, when Jesus says, by this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Anytime I hear a report about RGF, I'm really just reminded of this verse. Not only that the gospel is being preached faithfully, but that it's being practiced faithfully in how much you love each other as a family and how much you're representing that family name of Jesus Christ. So our text this morning is from one of my favorite books, and it's uh, Paul's second epistle to the Corinthians. So if you'd open up your Bibles to the first chapter of 2 Corinthians, please. We'll get into some of the background of this letter throughout the sermon, uh, but Paul writes this letter having had gone through much pain and suffering. His relationship with the Korean church, Korean church, (laughs) Corinthian church has been rocky to say the least. Uh, But Paul always writes to them with the heart of a father. We're going to focus on verses three and four of chapter one this morning, but I'll read starting from verse one. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is at Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, for we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the sufficiency of scripture. We thank you for leaving us your Holy Spirit till the work on earth is done. God, I just ask that you would use me as your vessel, your unworthy servant who is made worthy by the blood of Jesus Christ to preach your word and that your word would bear much fruit this morning. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So before we actually dive into this morning's text, uh, some background. By the time Paul first sets foot in Corinth in Acts chapter 18, the city is a very, very modern city. It's growing fast. It's very diverse, but it's also known for its sinfulness and its worldliness, much like New York City. Paul spends about a year and a half there getting to know the Corinthians, developing deep relationships, teaching them scripture and theology while planting a growing church. He then leaves to continue on his missionary journey, but their relationship does not stop. Through letters and more personal visits, the relationship between Paul and the Corinthian church grow to be very unique. 
This morning, we're going to look at the fourth of those letters that Paul sends to this church. There may have been more, but we read of only four letters in the Bible. The first letter is lost, but is referenced in the second letter, 1 Corinthians. And then there's a third letter referenced as the severe letter, which is also lost to us. The fourth and final letter is 2 Corinthians, which references the severe letter, the third letter. So two of them are lost, and two of them are inspired by the Holy Spirit, what we today call 1 and 2 Corinthians, which are actually the second and fourth letters to the Corinthian church. Hope you follow. So for the purposes of this morning, we'll focus on three main points. Point number one, our God. Point number two, his comfort. And point number three, his church. Point number one, our God. Paul starts off his letter with a salutation. And then he immediately breaks into a benediction. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This sets the stage, the mood, the foundation for the rest of the letter. This already is really beautiful, right? Remember, Paul has suffered a lot by now. By the time he writes this letter, he suffered a lot. But also consider the source. This comes from a man who used to break into homes and imprison people who profess Jesus Christ as Lord. His testimony is famous. It was then, it was famous then in the writing of this book we're opened up to this morning, and it's famous today. It was testimony was famous and known since the infancy of Christendom and repeated throughout generations. Paul was a Pharisee of the highest order. He oversaw the public execution of the first martyr of Jesus Christ and the first deacon of the early church, whose name was Stephen. Acts chapter 8, verse 1 says, Saul approved of his murder. And if Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost was the spark that set off the advance of the church, the execution of Stephen was a spark that set off the war against it. Acts chapter 8, verse 2 tells us that Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. And then we read in the next chapter, chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, but Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, that is the way of Jesus Christ, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Paul was an executioner of the bride of Christ. You remember that. Luke says he was breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. He was already going from house to house, tearing families apart, but he wanted more. He needed more leads. So he goes to the synagogues to find them. And then we read of Paul going at 100 miles an hour to Damascus, and he isn't focused on anything else but sending more Christians to their deaths. The church is growing. The Holy Spirit is contagious. And Paul knows that if he does not act now, it will take over the world. So what does he do? He needs to nip it in the bud at the church's infancy. He needs to kill as many and as quickly Christians as possible. And then we get to our favorite phrase, but God. Paul is running at full speed, but God. Jesus Christ shows up and stops Paul literally in his tracks. He encounters the risen Christ, and what does he do? Without a single sword, Jesus causes this murderer to surrender. But God. And suddenly, instead of passionately pursuing death among Christians, he spends the rest of his life passionately pursuing life 
among dead sinners. And here he is, fully transformed in mind and heart by the Holy Spirit who raised Jesus from the dead, crying out, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He starts by blessing God, and then he describes God with titles. The first title is that he is the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul, this Old Testament scholar, does not address God as the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the patriarchs of the Jewish people. He's not referred to as the father of these fallen and sinful men anymore. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 15, God is referred to as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. In Joshua chapter 18, verse 3, God is referred to the Israelites as the God of your fathers. Ezra tells the priest in Ezra 8, verse 28, the God of your fathers. But no longer is our God primarily known as the God of sinners like Abraham and Isaac, who both gave up their wives to protect themselves. No longer is our God primarily known as the God of Jacob, who conned both his brother and his father. Jesus is greater, and this should be of much comfort to us. See, Abraham died. Isaac died. Jacob died. But Jesus declares, truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. John chapter 8, verse 51. And then in verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And then again in verse 58, Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. He is the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. Paul says in his first epistle to Timothy, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. He is our Lord Jesus Christ, our God, our Deliverer, our Messiah. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's really important this morning to weigh every inspired word here because it will launch us into some very practical truths this morning. Remember that Paul has just escaped a lot of affliction and he continues in verse three, blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the father of mercies and God of all comfort. So he is praising this God who is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And now he is a father of mercies and God of all comfort. That's the second title. And when we see this, we notice that God prefers to be called Father. I mean, what a title, right? What a name for himself. John 3, 16, you guys know it. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. God so loved the world. There are times we think of God the Father as a seething, vengeful God who holds a cup of wrath in his hand and is just looking for a place to empty it on. And then Jesus Christ comes in and blocks him from us, and then he almost reluctantly loves us and has to look elsewhere to satisfy that wrath. But the reason John 3.16 is really famous and popular is because the text is so clear. God loved us first. Jesus died because God loved us. Because God had mercy on us. He is the father of mercies who comforts us. Psalm 68, 5, father of the fatherless and protector of widows is God in his holy habitation. 
another famous verse, Lamentations chapter 3, verse 22. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Make no mistake about it. He is a loving, merciful father. Mercy and comfort spring forth from the fountain of God. Additionally, notice Paul's use of the plural and possessive pronoun, our. So he goes verse after verse. In verse 1, Timothy, our brother. In verse 2, grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 4, who comforts us in all our affliction. Now Paul's relationship with this church is a little frayed. So we know this through the four letters I mentioned earlier. The first letter, remember, is lost, but he primarily, in this letter, addresses an issue where the church members are making deep friendships with non-believers. The line between the Corinthian church and the Corinthian culture is blurred. Then Paul writes a second letter. This is 1 Corinthians, which is in the Bible. In this letter, Paul provides clarity on his first letter and then addresses several problems. This is not an exhaustive list, but they were guilty of leaving heinous sins unchecked and undisciplined. They were abusing the Lord's Supper. They were filing lawsuits against each other. They were guilty of abusing the gifts of the Spirit, of worshiping in arrogance and pride, of worshiping lovelessly. There were false doctrines that were creeping into their church regarding the resurrection. And shortly after Paul sends a letter, he learns that things have actually gotten worse. So Paul interrupts his missionary journey and heads to Corinth nearly a year earlier than he intended. But when he returns there, things blow up. In the church, there are outbursts of anger between each other and direct opposition against Paul. It gets ugly. After he leaves, he writes a third letter. The third letter also is lost. Remember, we know this as a severe letter or in some circles, a letter of tears. We learn he regretted sending the letter because it might have been too harsh. Remember, there was a delete button back then. And thankfully, he hears that the severe letter was received well, finally, that disciplinary actions have been taken. But there's still more bad news. False teachers have infiltrated the Corinthian church, and now they have a strong and growing presence within the church. Paul's name is also being dragged through the mud. Right? His character is being called into question, that Paul is unreliable and disloyal, that Paul is a tyrant and too domineering for his cause on discipline, that he is proud and arrogant, and even the legitimacy of his apostleship is called into question. So with this report, Paul writes this letter, 2 Corinthians. This obviously makes it into the canon of Scripture. This is an inspired letter. All that to say, discouragement after discouragement, Paul's relationship with the Corinthian church by the time he puts pen to paper for this final letter is strained. He poured his heart into this church and spent a lot of time. There's just no peace. Furthermore, he writes this after having suffered a lot in Asia. We, we don't know the details of the suffering, but we know that Paul and his team narrowly escapes death. There was a lot of anguish and a lot of affliction. And Paul, having just been delivered by God from that, responds to the report of the church in Corinth a few months before he heads there to be with them himself. 
They've been guilty of a lot of things. They're divided. They've attacked Paul. Yet Paul calls them, what? A church of God. He's not excusing them, but Paul uses the word our, our brother, our father, our Lord. And what a beautiful word that becomes when we consider their history, right? What a comforting word that becomes. Paul never doubts their validity as a church. Despite all the funky sins that they've had going on, despite all the liberality with which they dealt their sin, Paul refers them directly as a church of God. And because they are a church of God, which means they are united with Christ, he talks of the blessings of God as belonging to our. And the Corinthians are already familiar with this doctrine. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And in chapter 12, verse 13, for in one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. Essentially that by being joined with Jesus Christ through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit within us, that God who is the father of our Lord Jesus Christ is also our father, as Paul says in verse two. That should be a mind-blowing truth to us. Right, beloved, do not forget our God is mighty, that our God is powerful, our God is strong, our God is the father of mercies, our God is the God of all comfort. And because of our union with Jesus Christ, he is our God. Like, do you believe that? And I know it's impossible to comprehend the magnitude of what I'm saying, but do you believe that the God of this Bible is your God? This is important because now Paul singles out a massive implication of what this means. 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 24 to 28, Paul lists his afflictions. Five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. On frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Yet Paul can start off his letter to a church that has attacked him, that has caused him unceasing anxiety and much grief. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Paul believes in the same God that prompted Job to call out after losing everything in Job 121. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The same God that prompted David when men were sent after to kill him to shout, Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you, O God, for you are my fortress in Psalm 59. The same God that prompted Jesus on the night of his betrayal and arrest, just hours before his crucifixion, to lift up his voice and sing a hymn of thanksgiving with his disciples in Matthew 26. God is not confined to the pages of this book. Do you believe in this God? Our God who is objective in his being and his love for us. And in his love, our God loves to comfort. Point number two his comfort. 
Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Us. This is so important because unless you are in the family of God, unless the God the Father sent his Son for you, unless you have called upon the name of the Lord, there is no comfort for you. There is no mercy for you. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 31, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Consider your status before this mighty God. Also, I don't, I don't mean that this applies to you if you're suffering from sin. If you are in sin and you are suffering, then you must repent and turn to the Lord because God does not comfort those who rebel against his perfection. For you, there is no mercy until you turn and call out to God. Understand that there is nothing in your might or in your power or in your speech or in your will that you can do to change this status. Man is born a slave to sin, slave to what others do, slaves to what they see on the media, in movies or TV, on Instagram, slaves to what they read. The Bible says that man is a slave to sin. And man lives as if everything is okay. And they take in the fashion, they take in the culture, they take in the language, they take in the media, and they wonder why they live in misery. They're injecting themselves with poisons that they were not created for, and they experience temporary bliss until they need that fix again. This is the message that people have rejected for thousands of years. That this message is silly, that it's ridiculous, that it's folklore. This is the message that Adam and Eve rejected. This is the message that Noah's neighbor rejected. This is the message that the Israelites rejected. This is the message that the Sanhedrin rejected before they crucified our Lord. Will this be the message you rejected? And God sent his only begotten son to leave the courts of the kingdom of God, that Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, Philippians 2. He's come deliberately for us. He's known it all. He's faced it all. He's heard it all. Man of sorrows, what a name. And after that death, on the third day, a Sunday, he was resurrected. Paul continues, continues in Philippians 2, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that, Christ, that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Would you call out to him? Would you release your grip on your sins, on your world, on your life and call upon God to save you from your wretchedness? Would you be crushed by the weight of your sin, blessing his name. Bless God. Application point number two, suffer well. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction. Again, I, I do not mean for this to be for those who have not committed their lives to this great God, our Father in heaven. I don't mean for this to be for those living in hidden and unrepentant sin. In fact, I do pray right now that your hearts weigh heavy 
and that there's this dread in your hearts for sinning against the perfect God so that there's nowhere else to turn to but the cross where the sins of those who believe and call upon the name of the Lord will find everlasting peace. In Paul Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress, the main character, Christian, carries a burden throughout the entire story. His weight of sin, and then he goes on a journey to get that burden off. He finally gets to that cross and he sings this song. Thus far did I come laden with my sin, nor could aught ease the grief that I was in till I came hither. What a place is this? Must here be the beginning of my bliss? Must here the burden fall from my back? Must here the strings that bound it to me crack? Blessed cross, blessed rather be the man that there was put to shame for me. This salvation is available for you today. You cannot unload this weight of sin by yourself. Call upon God, the Father of mercies, and he will free you. But for those who have experienced the sweet salvation and freedom in our Lord Jesus Christ, suffer well. I don't know where you are right now. And when you're called to preach spontaneously, there's this temptation to preach to as wide an audience as possible. But for those suffering today, and in this fallen world, perhaps there are more people suffering in several ways. For those suffering today, suffer well. Consider Job, who cried out, blessed be the name of the Lord. Consider Jesus, who sang before sweating great drops of blood in anguish. Consider Paul, who broke into praise in our text today. Consider Joseph's tears and Elijah's pleading for death. Consider how they looked upward instead of inward, heavenward instead of themselves. They may have believed in God better than you, but they did not believe in a better God than you. God, who by grace grants faith, will strengthen it. Though it doesn't seem like it right now, though it feels like there's just no light at the end of the tunnel, and it's dark, and you feel the weight of your own bones against your skin because of the weight of your sorrow, do you, in your soul, believe that God is faithful? Suffer well, Christian. Stop listening to your sorrows and your flesh and call upon the promises of God. In Psalm 77, the psalmist opens up that he cannot see God in his life, in his soul. He's alone. He's empty. But then he recalls what God has already done. Verse 19, your way was through the sea, your path through the great waters, yet your footprints were unseen and holds fast that God will deliver him through the sea of his own tears, footsteps unseen. Child of God, God has not forgotten you. He is the everlasting God, the eternal God, the unchanging God, and he is the fountain of mercies and comfort. And Christ sympathizes with you in your sorrow, in your misery, but he also shares with you his glory. Here's Spurgeon again, drawing from his own experiences with depression. When we are lowest, we can still say, our Father. And when it is dark and we are very weak, our childlike appeal can go up, Father, help me. Father, rescue me, end quote. Take heart and wait on the Lord. Would the light at the end of the tunnel be the glory of Jesus Christ himself? Would the lamb be the lamb of God? Suffer well. And final point of application, point three, share your wounds. 
Your suffering, Christian, is for others. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ, Galatians 6.2. One of my favorite poets is William Cooper. You may recognize his poem, which is also a hymn, There is a Fountain Filled with Blood, based in Zechariah 13.1. Cooper struggled with severe, major bouts of depression and several episodes throughout his life. His mother died, and his relationship with his father was very, very strained. He spent years in an asylum. He attempted suicide multiple times. And to, and to those who have experienced depression before, he got it. Right? He understood depression. Loaded as my life is with despair, I have no such comfort as would result from a supposed probability of better things to come where it once ended. You will tell me that this cold gloom will be succeeded by a cheerful spring and endeavor to encourage me to hope for a spiritual change resembling it. But it will be lost labor. There is a mystery in my destruction, and in time it shall be explained. Cooper's pastor was John Newton, who is also famous for another hymn, Amazing Grace. More importantly, Newton, having gone through much pain and sorrow himself, was able to come alongside and counsel Cooper through these seasons of darkness. I think it's really awesome when we know the history of some of the songs that we sing and understand sort of the context that laid the foundation for the songs. In fact, it was after Cooper's first major bout of depression when he wrote, There is a fountain filled with blood. Ever since by faith I saw the stream, thy flowing wound supply, Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. When this poor, lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. Don't the words bear much more weight when you know the heart of its author? Think of the multitudes that have been helped by these words penned from his pain-ridden heart to the empty parchment. Cooper had Newton, but now we have Cooper. Not only did Cooper understand depression, he understood that in Christ, that which seems to break us down to pieces, no matter the sorrow, no matter the darkness, no matter the shame, that they ought to be used to build up the body of Christ. This is the final thing I'll say. Be it depression, be it sickness, be it whatever, busyness, errands, your work, quarantining and social distancing does not give us an out to bear one another's burdens and love on each other and care for each other and sympathize with one another. Protect yourselves in your health as you feel necessary. Take the right measures to make sure that you're healthy. It's important. But never forget that the effects of the fallen world still exist. And your brothers and sisters are hurting. Never forget that. We love because he first loved us. And we belong to this family, this family name that we claim this morning, this family that lives in heaven and on earth. This family name, believer, is the name of the Father of mercies and God of all comfort. He is a father of our whole family. He loves you no less than the greatest saint. He loves every single hair on your head. Don't forget that in your loneliness. Don't forget that in your pains, in your sorrows, or even in your doubt. But don't forget that in loving your brothers and sisters. Know that the privileges of this family name extends to our highest of joys and the deepest of our afflictions. RGF, in any and every way, build up your family. Share your wounds. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your church. We thank you that you've given us each other, Lord, that you've hand-selected this family and provided us 
uh, with one another to love on each other and to protect each other and to preach truth to one another. Father, most of all, we thank you for you. We thank you for how you have not just left us alone, that you are not an idle father or an idle God, that you are not a permissive father or a permissive God, but you are a God who cares and who longs to be with his people. Lord, and we look forward to that day when one day we will be united with you, reconciled in your name. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.